Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of kidnapping and harm against minors. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In the early 20th century, adoption was a rarity in the U.S. That's because most people believed that nature far outweighed nurture and that orphans were tainted. Either they were children of sin born to immoral, unwed mothers, or there was some genetic flaw that made them undesirable. Enter Georgia Tan. From the 1920s to 40s, she single-handedly changed the public's perception of adoption. She convinced people that environment was what mattered in the raising of an orphan. So long as they were raised properly, these children could be anything, from Yale graduates to concert pianists, whatever their new parents desired. Georgia was so successful that during her lifetime, she orchestrated nearly 5,000 adoptions. But the thing was, nearly all of them were straight up illegal. And she got away with the whole thing, making herself a very rich woman in the process. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, we're exploring the life and crimes of Georgia Tan, who transformed adoption practices in America. We'll learn how she got her first taste of placing children into adoptive homes as a teenager and how she eventually turned that into a lucrative career in the world of black market adoptions. Next week, we'll see how Georgia expanded her enterprise through a web of lies, blackmail, and kidnapping. Then we'll discuss her lasting legacy and examine how her actions still affect families today. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. 
There's a lot about the American South that holds an undeniable charm. Southern bells, chivalrous gentlemen, the kind of warm hospitality that keeps you coming back. But like any place, there are parts that aren't so welcoming. At the turn of the 20th century, the South was very segregated. And I'm not just talking racial divides. There were clear-cut lines based on a person's financial status. Those without money faced a lot of hardships. And those with a fat trust fund? Well, they could do just about anything. Of course, that's still how it works today, because no matter where or when you're born, money means power. And Georgia Tan rarely wanted for either of those things. That's because she was born into a world of privilege in 1891. Her mother, Beulah, came from a prominent local family, and her father, George, was a well-respected federal judge. Needless to say, the Tans were well off, especially by Hickory standards, which was where they lived in Mississippi. They had the nicest house in town, and Georgia lived a charmed life. But all that came with a lot of expectations. As far as Judge Tan was concerned, his daughter was to become a respectable lady, find a good husband, and have lots of children. And that was about it. Now, Georgia idolized her father and wanted to make him proud, but she struggled to accept the life he laid out for her. While other girls her age wore frilly dresses, she sported flannel shirts and trousers. When the boys played outside, Georgia ran to join them. Even when Judge Tan managed to get his daughter inside to practice piano, she stared out the window, longing to go back to where the real fun was happening. In short, Georgia bucked the expectations heaped onto a young Southern woman, including the biggest one of all. She had absolutely zero interest in marriage. And there was a good reason for that. While it's never been confirmed, it's believed that Georgia was gay. Given the time period, that's not something she would have openly spoken about. But it seems this realization drove her to search for a different path. Instead of finding a husband, she decided she'd much rather focus on building a career in law, just like her dad. With that in mind, Georgia started following her father to work as often as she could. She'd find a spot in the back of his courtroom and spend hours listening to him preside over cases. That's where she first realized her community had a problem. Whenever her dad sent criminal parents away, their children were left behind. This left Judge Tan with few options. He could send the kids to a workhouse or a state asylum, or he could help them get adopted. The latter seems like the best course of action, right? But at the turn of the 20th century, adoption carried a harsh stigma. Most people thought genes were what defined a person's entire life course. That meant that if the birth parents were sick, immoral, or destitute, people believed their children would be too. Before we continue with the psychology for this story, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. According to researcher Michelle Cahan, this attitude toward adoption stemmed from the eugenics movement, which is the debunked and prejudiced belief that selective breeding can better the human species. In practice, eugenics means preventing anyone considered undesirable from reproducing. 
this could mean forced sterilizations, banned marriages, and as we see in this story, shunning the practice of adoption. Even when a child was lucky enough to be adopted into a loving home, the law didn't recognize them as blood heirs. If anything happened to their adoptive parents, they were cast out again, with no inheritance or safety net of any kind. People figured it was a lose-lose situation for everyone, so they generally turned their noses up at the idea. But Georgia's father saw things differently. Whenever possible, he placed orphans into adoptive homes, and he put his money where his mouth was. At some point during Georgia's childhood, Judge Tan adopted a boy named Rob. It's not clear if Georgia actually liked her adopted brother or not, but it didn't matter all that much. She was more concerned with her father's opinion. If Judge Tan was gonna help orphans, then so would she. After that, young Georgia started performing volunteer work. We don't know the specifics of what she did, but I can imagine she visited the poorest parts of town to provide essentials like food and clothes to those in need. So it would seem that whatever she became, Georgia started her life fostering only good intentions. But one fateful event made her heart considerably harder. One night, Judge Tan got a troubling call. A woman had been arrested for drug use and sent to the state asylum. That was a common enough practice at the time because authorities saw it as an easy way to handle anyone they decided was an addict. But now the woman had come out of her drug haze and she revealed that there was no one looking after her baby. It was all alone in her home. The official on the other end of the line asked if Judge Tan could check it out. Why a federal judge was called instead of the sheriff's department is a little unclear, but he agreed to help out. So the family piled into a car and drove over to a shack in the countryside. Sure enough, there was a baby inside waiting for them. It was wrapped up in dirty rags and apparently looked like it had gotten some of its mother's morphine. It was a startling sight for anyone to see, but Georgia took it especially hard. When the Tans brought the child home for the night, she held the baby in her arms and nursed it to sleep. But even though she was relieved that the infant was safe, she felt something dark brewing inside of her. Georgia hated the child's mother for what she'd done. Not only had she left her baby behind, but she'd exposed the child to drugs. As far as Georgia was concerned, that was proof that single, unwed mothers were ill-equipped to care for their children. If their kids remained under their care, then they were destined for terrible fates. Unless Georgia did something to change that. The baby was eventually sent to an orphanage, but by that time, an idea had taken hold in Georgia's mind. She was going to save these children from their irresponsible mothers and make sure they had a proper home. In 1906, Georgia finally got a chance to do just that. One day, the 15-year-old was at the courthouse watching her father preside over a trial. At the end of the proceedings, Judge Tan had to decide what to do with a five-year-old boy and his three-year-old sister. After careful thought, he ordered them to be sent to the Mississippi Children's Home Society. Georgia watched this all go down and decided that she could find a better solution. So she spent the next three weeks searching for a local couple willing to adopt the siblings. 
We don't know how many families she spoke with, but we can assume that most people in town shot her down. But Georgia persevered. She wanted to prove that she could save these kids. And she kind of did. Georgia found a couple who desperately wanted children of their own. She convinced them that under the right guidance, the children would be like their own biological offspring. If they raised them right, it would be like the birth parents were never involved. Again, this was contrary to what most people believed at the time, that adoption wasn't a good idea. Something about Georgia's argument must have resonated with the couple because they agreed to take both kids. Georgia was certainly pleased with herself. In her mind, she just spared the siblings from a really horrible existence. Of course, she never considered that the best option might have been to reunite the kids with their birth parents. But Georgia didn't care about the biological parents at all. She had much more faith in the wealthy couple who took the children in. Under their care, Georgia was confident that the two siblings would turn into respectable citizens. But as good as Georgia felt, she never thought about doing this work as a potential livelihood. After high school, she went off to attend Mary Washington College in Virginia. By this stage, she'd moved past her desire to go into the law. So just like her dad always wanted, she studied music. She spent the next four years honing her craft before graduating and taking a job as a music teacher. But that didn't last long dealing with students took the kind of patience Georgia just didn't have. So in 1913, the 22-year-old switched gears and decided to try the only other real option for women at the time, social work. Little did she know how monumental that decision would be. Coming up, Georgia enters the world of black market adoptions. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when mommy dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this ParCast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores. 
including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now back to the story. In 1913, Georgia Tan landed a job as a supervisor at the Children's Home Finding Society in Jackson, Mississippi. And as the facility's name suggests, she was responsible for finding homes for orphans. But as I mentioned earlier, adoption as we know it today was a rarity back then. For most orphans, their best bet was to go into work homes where they, quote, earned their keep by performing menial chores. The only other viable option was to institutionalize them. 22-year-old Georgia wanted to change that. In fact, she saw it as a sort of moral obligation. In her mind, all kids deserved a life filled with opportunity. That meant they needed parents who were just as rich and affluent as hers. Fortunately, Georgia knew a lot of wealthy couples who desperately wanted a child, but couldn't conceive on their own. She just had to convince prospective parents to get over their misgivings about adoption and see things her way. And Georgia had a lot to say on the matter. She often began her pitch by explaining that most orphanages were things to be done away with because they slowed down what should be a swift process. In an ideal adoption situation, a child would be placed into a home almost as soon as he or she was considered an orphan. Not only was this good for the child, it saved the taxpayers money because they didn't have to fund orphanages. What Georgia failed to tell her clients was that she'd hoped to turn the process of adoption into a lucrative business for herself. Now, I can't say for certain how or when she came to this realization, but it seems she suspected how much childless couples would pay for a baby of their own. She just had to convince them that adoption was a good thing and she could make a killing. It's also unclear exactly when Georgia started charging people for her services as a facilitator of adoptions, but that did happen at some stage. And once it did, it would have been a tidy little side hustle on top of her regular salary. But wait, didn't Georgia come from a wealthy family? Why on earth would she be so concerned with making a fortune when her parents already had one? Well, it's hard to say, but the answer might lie in those expectations we talked about earlier. Find a husband, have some babies, carry on. But with no intention of finding herself a respectable man to take care of her, Georgia might have realized she needed to do it herself, especially if her father felt disappointed by her unorthodox path. A woman living without a man by her side was kind of a big deal back then. So the more money Georgia had, the more she would have been insulated against whatever society threw at her. Insulation certainly would have come in handy for what came next. In 1920, 
21-year-old Ann Atwood took up the position of house mother at one of the satellite locations of the Mississippi Children's Home Society. When Ann walked through the door, 29-year-old Georgia did a double take. She recognized the woman. They had both grown up in Hickory. In fact, their parents had been good friends. With an eight-year age gap between them, the two hadn't been close as children. Georgia would have been heading off to college as Anne was finishing up elementary school. But now it was a different story. Georgia and Anne were closer to equals, and they had the same interests. Anne was thin, short, and somewhat plain-looking. People tended to focus more on her personality, though. Those who knew her described her as a snobbish artist who spent her free time painting landscapes. But she and Georgia hit it off almost immediately. And it's speculated that they became lovers. Again, we're going off context clues here because neither Georgia nor Anne ever confirmed they were more than just friends. But they did live together in Jackson and were almost certainly in some sort of domestic partnership. This wasn't that strange at the time. In fact, there was even a name for it. They called it a Boston marriage. To the outside world, these were simply close female friendships where two women lived together. Yes, they wore rings, but they also called each other sister, the very definition of, and they were roommates. Georgia had witnessed similar relationships when she'd been at college. Now it seems she realized the life she wanted was possible. She didn't have to go the traditional marriage route. She could be who she was and still have a partner, even if it had to be under certain circumstances. But between her relationship with Anne and the revolving door of happy families she was creating at work, Georgia started to think differently about her own notions of motherhood. On one hand, she looked down on a lot of the single mothers she worked with. She judged their inability to provide for their children and shunned their immoral ways. At the same time, she was reportedly jealous of their fertility. If we're right about Georgia's sexuality and her commitment to Anne, then she likely knew she'd never have a biological child of her own. But she really wanted one. So in 1922, the 31-year-old adopted a baby girl and named her June. Please allow me a moment to point out the hypocrisy of this decision. Georgia had spent half her life hating unwed mothers, but now she was one. Of course, the big difference there was that she had plenty of money. And in Georgia's world, that changed a lot. Unfortunately, it seemed that money couldn't buy Georgia everything. While she tried to be a loving parent, it didn't seem to take. Motherhood just didn't give her the satisfaction she thought it would. It's very possible that Georgia was experiencing symptoms of post-adoption depression, the close cousin to postpartum depression. According to a report by Vice, for adoptive parents, bringing a new child home can reignite feelings of grief, loss, and unresolved infertility issues. They have high expectations that the baby will change their lives, but if they don't experience that immediate gratification, they assume something's wrong. There's a sense of deflation and disappointment. Georgia had no way of knowing that these feelings were common amongst parents, both adoptive and biological. The diagnosis wasn't even on medical professionals' radars at the time, so why would it be on hers? 
Still, without that knowledge, she likely felt like a failure, which only added to her resentment of other single mothers. As a result, Georgia pawned off most of her parental duties to Anne, who was happy to care for June. As far as we can tell, Anne was fully aware of Georgia's aspirations to revolutionize the adoption industry. She knew that Georgia had her sights set on a big prize and did whatever she could to help build her empire. I say empire because Georgia was done playing it small. After spending time building the reputation of adoptions in general, she was ready to take things to the next level. That meant placing more children into adoptive homes. But while she'd convinced plenty of people to adopt, a new problem had arisen. She was running out of orphans. And this is where Georgia crosses the line from morally questionable to downright wicked because she decided that if there were no kids readily available, she'd go out and find them herself. In the spring of 1922, 31-year-old Georgia drove out to a cabin near Hickory, Mississippi. It's not clear how she knew to go to this house, but somehow she'd heard about a young, recently widowed mother. Her name was Rose Harvey, and she had two boys, a two-year-old we'll call John, and his three-year-old brother we'll call Tommy. She was also pregnant with a third child and exhausted all the time. So when Georgia arrived that day, Rose was taking a nap. That was fine by Georgia. She wasn't there for Rose. She just wanted the kids. But when she pulled up to the house, John was the only one in sight. He was outside playing on the porch. Thinking quickly, Georgia convinced the two-year-old to get into her car. She likely told him she was a friend of his mom's and she was taking him somewhere fun. Not that it really mattered what she said. John was much too young to know better. Once he got in the car, Georgia hit the gas and sped away. From there, she took the boy to her father. Now, I can't say for certain if the federal judge was in on the scheme from the start or whether he was in the dark. It's certainly possible that Georgia made up a sob story to sell him on the belief that she was truly helping the kid. In any case, Judge Tan signed the papers that declared Rose Harvey an unfit mother, and John was put into Georgia's custody. The document also meant that Georgia could go back for his brother legally. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Georgia got custody of three-year-old Tommy. Then she gave both boys away to adoptive families, or rather, she sold them and pocketed the money for herself. Of course, even back then, no one was supposed to make a profit off of adoption, so Georgia couldn't outright sell her services. Instead, she charged couples for what she called transportation fees and asked them for reimbursement for the cost of bringing the kids to the parents. And she made sure her rates were suitably overpriced. But her clients hardly blinked an eye. All the couples she worked with were affluent, so money was never an issue. On top of that, Georgia expedited a process that typically took six months to a year, eliminating a whole lot of red tape and bureaucracy in the process. And adoptive parents were willing to pay for that ease. When they asked Georgia who the check should be made out to, she always told them to put her own name down. Then she took their money and deposited it in her personal bank account. 
The orphanage she ran, the Tennessee Children's Home Society, never saw a penny of it. But as far as the new parents were concerned, they believed they were doing everything by the books. They thought they were adopting kids who needed a home, not kidnapping innocent children. One person who didn't see it that way was Rose Harvey, and she wasn't about to let her sons go quietly. She begged and pleaded for their return. When that didn't work, she sued for her right to her children. She insisted that she wasn't unfit, she was just a single mother. But in the eyes of the law, it seems that was crime enough. We don't know what reasons were given, but Rose's suit was eventually dismissed, and that was that. Her sons were gone. While Georgia considered this a victory, this particular scheme ended up backfiring. Word of the incident got around and a lot of locals were rightfully upset. Everyone knew that Georgia Tan had kidnapped Rose's kids from under her. As a result, Georgia was pressured to leave Jackson, Mississippi. People didn't want someone like her prowling the streets, stealing children away from their parents. Luckily for Georgia, her father had plenty of contacts, and he helped her get a job at an orphanage in Texas. With that, she picked up and moved to the Lone Star State with her daughter. She was there for about two years, presumably carrying on as she had in Mississippi. Then, in 1924, she and 25-year-old Anne moved to Tennessee, where Georgia had accepted a post as director of the Children's Home Society. And she was about to take Memphis by storm. Coming up, a new setting allows Georgia to expand her operation. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now back to the story. In 1924, Georgia Tan moved to Memphis and got to work at the Tennessee Children's Home Society. As the new director, she had every intention of overhauling their adoption practices to suit her own agenda. Fortunately for Georgia, she had two things going for her. First, the eugenics movement was finally on the decline and the public's perception of adoption was shifting. Second was Edward Crump, He was a corrupt politician who pretty much ran Memphis. He demanded kickbacks, respect, and loyalty. In return, he looked the other way when it came to illegal businesses and made sure the police officers and judges under his thumb did too. No one's really sure how their partnership developed, but Georgia knew Crump was a good friend to have. 
Somehow she got in his good graces and earned his blessing. She'd have full reign to revamp adoption practices in Memphis. There'd be kickbacks she'd need to take care of, but she didn't care. She was off to the races. Georgia went all over the city, giving people the same spiel about the benefits of adoption. She leaned into the idea that orphans weren't damaged goods. They were blank slates waiting to be shaped. Slowly but surely, she wormed her way into the hearts and minds of the city's elite. And soon, she drummed up a list of potential clients. Within a year of moving to Memphis, she was the go-to woman if you wanted to adopt. And like before, it's likely she was pocketing some trumped-up fees for herself with every transaction. Now, in a way, Georgia did some good. She made adoption an acceptable, even encouraged practice. There was no denying that a well-placed adoption was preferable to sending kids to work camps or institutions. But once she had control of the legal adoption market in the city, she wanted more. And if she was going to expand her business, she needed to start taking advantage of some loopholes. At this time, there were no laws or regulations to guarantee that parents giving up their children were doing so voluntarily. That meant Georgia could manufacture more orphans than there really were, like she'd done by kidnapping Rose Harvey's sons. Secondly, adoption agencies weren't required to check that prospective parents were fit to be caregivers. So Georgia could place kids in any home, no questions asked. And she did all of this by targeting the very people she despised the most, poor, unwed, single mothers. Georgia found it easy to take advantage of this particular socioeconomic group because she didn't really like them at all. In fact, she judged the poor and blamed them for their own circumstances. She wasn't alone in her beliefs either. According to biographer Barbara Byzance Raymond, Southern culture in general looked down on quote-unquote poor whites and encouraged dehumanization. Researcher Mario Sines and his colleagues also found that it was common for people from higher socioeconomic groups to dehumanize those who are less well-off. Wealthy people have a tendency to think that poorer individuals lack rationality or civility, but those traits are part of what makes us human, and when they're denied, it leads to a kind of, quote, animalization. In other words, rich people often see poor people as less than human. Those who traditionally experience this kind of prejudice come from groups that societies unjustly deem subordinate, like minorities, immigrants, or in the 1920s, unwed mothers. This type of thinking allowed Georgia to keep a firm distance from the cases she got involved with. She believed she was doing necessary work by removing children from, and I'm using air quotes here, bad circumstances. But here's what she was really doing. Georgia was kidnapping children left and right. She lurked around low-income areas, looking for the perfect marks. She needed the children to be white. They were easily pawned off to her wealthy clientele. She also had to make sure the birth mother was a nobody, preferably uneducated and gullible. And if she was an addict or sex worker, well, that was like hitting the jackpot. Their words would always pale in comparison to someone of Georgia's standing. 
When she settled on a target, she'd make her move. Sometimes she kidnapped the children while the mother wasn't paying attention, like with Rose Harvey's boys. Other times, she convinced the woman she could get their child much-needed medical care, if only they let her take them away for a few hours. Her tactics might have varied, but the outcome was always the same. Once Georgia had the children, it was too late. Even still, birth parents across the city fought to get their kids back. But sadly, they met roadblocks at every turn. Remember, Georgia had Edward Crump on her side. Thanks to him, judges and police officers turned a blind eye to parents' desperate pleas. They weren't about to go against Crump's orders, not for people they knew didn't have any power. So for the next three years, Georgia operated with impunity. She sought out parents who needed help, then tricked them into leaving their kids in her care. She had papers drawn up to make everything legal and convinced the birth parents to sign before they understood what they were agreeing to. By the late 1920s, Georgia had kidnapped and placed hundreds of kids in adoptive homes. But as her operation expanded, she grew more and more indifferent about the why of it all. When she'd first begun her foray into adoption as a teenager, Georgia had somewhat noble intentions. Misguided as heck, but it seems she meant well. She believed she was helping kids in dire situations, but now each orphan had a price on their head. They were just commodities to be sold off and traded. But as often happens, Georgia's eyes were too big for her stomach. By December of 1929, she had taken way too many kids, and her supply heavily outweighed her demand. To make matters worse, the Children's Home Society only had so many rooms, so Georgia had to shell out extra cash to house the kids in different boarding homes all over the city. Suddenly, she was bleeding money. Frustrated, Georgia complained about the situation to a reporter friend, Ada Gilkey, who just so happened to have a problem of her own. She was supposed to write a heartwarming Christmas story for the local paper, but she couldn't seem to find one. After talking for a while, the pair decided maybe they could help each other out. They traded ideas back and forth until they settled on something that they thought was just the ticket, a Christmas giveaway. And remember how Georgia saw the children she stole as commodities? Well, they were the prizes on offer. All people had to do was call in or write in and explain why they deserved a child. If they won, Georgia would deliver a brand new baby to their doorstep. Now, Here's where I start to question the critical thinking ability of everyone involved, because Ada thought the giveaway was a brilliant idea. Nothing wrong with handing out children like t-shirts at a baseball game, right? So she wrote the copy, and Georgia supplied photos of two children in their finest outfits. Then it was rushed to the printers. The shocking thing? Just 10 minutes after the first run of newspapers went out, Georgia had received dozens of calls. Within hours, she'd placed both kids in new homes. The scheme was so successful that Georgia figured she'd do it again. In fact, she held another giveaway every day for the rest of the month. Each featured a different child, sometimes several. 
By Christmas Day, she delivered 25 babies to new families around Memphis. And that wasn't all. The whole thing had drummed up so much publicity that Georgia and the Tennessee Children's Home Society even had a wait list of prospective parents. And it wasn't just locals who were interested. The ads garnered national attention. By Christmas, Georgia had couples from all around the country interested in her services. The laws at the time forbade out-of-state adoptions, but trivialities like that had never stopped Georgia before, and they weren't going to stop her now. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two, where Georgia's black market operation takes off and her crimes get heartbreakingly worse. For more information on Georgia Tan, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Baby Thief by Barbara Byzance Raymond, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Jane O. and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this Parcast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify.